So we're picking up at John, will you point at? Oh, you're gonna see what's in the bag, don't you worry. Don't you worry, there's, there's treasures in store right here, all right? Last week, we left off in John's story with Jesus at the final holiday of the Jewish holiday season, a lot like our Thanksgiving. They call it Sukkoth in Hebrew, but we would call it something like the Feast of Booths or the Festival of the Tabernacles. And we talked last week what this was about. Basically, what you would do is you would get like, well, we would get like pine branches or something like that, and you would go and you'd build a temporary shelter and you'd live in it for seven days. This is still practiced in Jewish communities today. And what you would do is live in these shelters for seven days and celebrate. You would have a party. It was kind of like Thanksgiving meets Woodstock meets Burning Man or something like that. And it revolved around water ceremonies. It was the dry season when the ground was parched and the ground was hard. It was the middle of this feast called tabernacles or booths where everyone was gathered in Jerusalem and these water ceremonies were taking place that Jesus stood up in the middle and said, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink and I will give him living water as the scriptures declare. Springs of living water will flow from him. But we're not done with tabernacles yet. Because here in John chapter 8, even though the chapter is different, the scene is the same. And so what I'm about to read to you is arguably also taking place on the last and greatest day of this seven-day holiday or festival called Tabernacles. Let me read it to you today. Starting at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. But Jesus said, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right, because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid, I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So they asked him, Who is your Father? You do not know me or my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. 
This made the Jews then ask, is he going to kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Yes, you will die in your sins indeed. Who are you, they asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. Now they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing of my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me, but has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And even as Jesus spoke, it says that many put their faith in him. Now, to the Jews who believed, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. They answered, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves to anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? So Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen the fathers in the father's presence. And you do what you have seen from your father. Abraham's our father, they replied. If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me. A man has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your father does. We're not illegitimate children, they answered. The only father we have is God himself. So Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. 
So the Jews answered him, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, Jesus said, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking my glory for myself, for there is no one who, for, for there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews explained, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus said, if I glorify myself, it means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, he is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not even 50 years old, they replied. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Things are escalating a bit, would you say? And all of this is still taking place in Jerusalem at a feast called Tabernacles. Now, I want to share another aspect with you today that's significant to what's going on of what was happening here at this feast. Because besides being a harvest feast, and besides being a time to commemorate when God brought us out through the wilderness, and we lived in temporary shelters, and he provided for us day by day, and so a feast of gratitude. Besides being a feast revolving around the imagery of water, it also revolved around something else. Light. Tabernacles and light are like this. It's the fall. Days are getting shorter. Nights are getting longer. And all of us know that moment in our own calendar when daylight savings time like works in reverse and suddenly it's dark out at like 12.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> and this is about the time you have to imagine all of this going on. Because the other thing that made its way into tabernacles was something with the season as it related to light. The idea that darkness is coming and light is waning. But that with God, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And here at that feast called tabernacles, they would celebrate it tapping into the stories of old, the prophecies that built upon them, and the idea of the God who saves even in times of darkness. Let me share this passage with you that comes from Zechariah. 
Zechariah, the Old Testament prophet, looks forward to a day when God will return and, and nightness, night will be banished and the, God, the, the, the light of God will break through. And look at what he says. On that day, there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water will flow in summer and in winter. Yahweh will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Yahweh and his name, the only name. Are you starting to see what's bubbling up as Jesus is there at the Feast of Tabernacles, at the festival that that finds expression in passages like these? Now, there's a ancient Jewish book called the Mishnah. Are you familiar with it? If not, it's totally worth some of your time. We all need a little bit more Mishnah in our lives. But it describes what the festival of tabernacles would look like. Go with me to Jerusalem. It's dark. And imagine if you would, like we do this time of year, your favorite lighting ceremony. You know what I mean? What are those things you go to that you have experienced where the lights just come on? A couple weeks ago, we were down at the Woodstock Square. And they decked that square out. If you've never been there, it's, of course, worth your time. And they start counting down 10, 9, 8, 2, 1. And the lights go on, and the place is aglow. You've seen it, right? Have you been to similar things? Similar kinds of of, of lightings, if you will. I think something like Brookfield Zoo. Going down there in December for their, their holiday magic or festival of lights. I think of something like the Olympics. The guy running with the torch. Mile after mile after mile, it's being handed off until finally it's put into this, this, this basin, this bowl that's the size of a small lake, and the light starts. It's cool on TV, but for those who have been fortunate to be firsthand with things like these, it's amazing, and it still captures wonder and awe, doesn't it? Now imagine you live in a society without artificial light, without electric light, I should say, where darkness is truly darkness and not the perpetual glow of LED that we have today. So that when it is night, it is truly night. With the exception maybe of a sporadic fire or torch or lantern. The Mishnah describes how at the Feast of Tabernacles, they would surround themselves around a festival of light. And what they would do is they would take four giant, they would have four giant stations. And in each station would be four giant bowls. You've got to imagine like Olympic size bowls that were put up on pedestals for all the city to see that could only be reached by ladders. And these bowls, these giant basins would be filled with an oil that would be about to be lit. 
Imagine now just for a moment that when the light hits, an explosion of fire happening and the reflection across all the yellow sandstone of the Jerusalem walls, the sight would have to be spectacular. The rabbis write that those who have not seen this have truly never experienced wonder and awe. Take that most magnificent lighting kind of thing that you can think and bring yourself back there. It goes on. It talks about how they would light the fire. And you can't make this stuff up, okay? Do you want to know what they used for the wicks? Because these things aren't there year-round. You've got to get these big bowls. You fill them with this flammable oil. But you've got to light something, right? You're not just putting your... You, you, you want to know what they used for the wicks? You can't make this up. The priest's old underwear. I kid you not. You can read about this in Exodus chapter 28. Because the priests were required to wear underwear. And there was a practical reason involved. Because imagine you're a priest and you're up here on stage and you know, it's, it's like tunic country. I mean, you can't be hanging out there, you know what I mean? And so, Exodus 28 would prescribe a special kind of linen undergarment that they would have to wear, otherwise they would incur guilt and die. Steep price for not wearing your underwear. Well, underwear gets old. And they would take these sacred vessels and use them to light these lamps. So this got me thinking. Got me thinking about my underwear. <laughs> and it got me thinking that a lot of you here probably have like lighting things of your own. Do you, do you light up a Christmas tree? Do you maybe like light a candle or a, an advent wreath? Do you light a fire this kind, this time of year? I felt like I was depriving you <laughs> by not sharing with you. My, my underwear. So for anyone who wants to just complete their holiday celebration, we have the tidy whitey variety in gray. We have the Concordia Seminary flannel boxers. We have this ridiculous thing that should never be worn by a man my age, especially outside of Europe. And so I'm just here to say in the spirit of white elephant, if any of you need to just kind of complete your holiday ceremonies, this is waiting for you right here. And for weeks, they would prepare. And the anticipation would build as the day would come. And you have to imagine the preparations, the scaffolding, the ladders, the pouring of the oil, the carts hauling it in, people getting ready for this, 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 this festival of light. Jerusalem starts to fill, the people come to celebrate, the pilgrims are pouring in. The Levites go forward. The Mishnah describes how there would be singing choirs and people dancing in the streets. And as they would enter the temple complex and go up the ladders and the music starts to swell and they begin to light them and the blaze goes forth, Jesus stands up 
in the middle. And he says this. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Not just the light of Jerusalem, mind you. Not just the light of his own people. He escalates. The very light of the world himself. You know, the saving activity of God is often equated to light throughout the Bible. God's first act of creation was light out of darkness. It was by a guiding light, by a pillar of fire, that God appeared to his people to Moses in a bush and then through the exodus, a fire by night to protect them and guard them and lead them and illuminate them. I think of the Psalms that cry out things like, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I think of Proverbs talking about the wisdom of God as a light for people Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Throughout the Bible, you'll find the saving acts of God attached to the concept of light. And here we have Jesus, and it's the middle of tabernacles, and the lights are blazing, and he stands up in the middle and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of light. Can you see it and experience what it must have been like for those people in a festival of light to watch one? I'm not quite sure what to make of him. Stand up in the middle and say, I am God's saving light. By this point in the story, I guess it shouldn't be a surprise that as Jesus is escalating his claims, so those who are hearing them are escalating too. As Jesus is claiming to be the guiding light to bring people out of darkness, just like Yahweh brought people through the wilderness, the response of the people escalates as well. Look at what it says. Playing off Jesus' comment that he's been sent by the Father, they respond in a number of ways. They say things like, Abraham is our father. Abraham is our father, So we're in good. Why do we need you? They see things like this. We are not illegitimate. Which, if you read the story closely, implies Jesus is. 
Not many people believe virgin births. Would you believe? We're not the illegitimate one here. They write them off. Make a dig. They escalate. You're a Samaritan. You're demon-possessed. Only someone who's a fool or evil would say things like you are saying here today. They reject him and write him off. They challenge him. Who do you think you are talking to me like that? They go bat about, they go, they go head to head, battle to battle. Like talking to a peer. They pick up stones to stone him. And here's what I don't want you to miss. All of this comes from people who are said to believe. So often we think of the enemies of Jesus in the story as those who are among the Jewish rulers, the leaders, or others that just reject him along the way. But how often do we actually pause to realize that often the greatest persecution Jesus received was religious persecution, meaning persecution from religious people, persecution from people who claimed to believe in him. Let me read 831 to you. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, and are all these after 831? It comes from those who claim to believe in him. To those who believed in him, Jesus said this, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. I argue that this suggests that believing in Jesus is not enough. Not enough to make you a disciple. Anyway, all kinds of people claim to believe, but it doesn't mean they follow Jesus. And I think it's a warning to us here who also claim to believe. That for those of us who call ourselves Christian and say, I believe in him, we sometimes run the greatest risk of being the greatest enemies of Jesus. I want to share with you or ask you, maybe as a better way of putting this, three questions here today. Specifically guided to those of you who believe. Things I'm thinking about just as I read John chapter 8. The first is this. How far will you escalate? You know, how, how far will you go in your fight against Jesus? Because I promise you, you do. In one capacity or another, you do. It's there. Unless you are a completely sanctified human being, then at some level and in some way, you are resisting, rejecting, and rebelling against Jesus. See, it's very easy to believe on Jesus when he says nice things and does nice things for me. But what happens when Jesus starts to make other claims 
and other demands. How do you respond? What we see in John's story is that many, they rise up against him. I'll go with you so far, but that's enough. I was with you to this point, but you have gone too far. How far will you escalate with Jesus? And the story that we've just read, they go so far as to start picking up stones to stone him. And I'll submit to you that I think we do too. Oh no, not in the same way, maybe not physically. But don't we have other ways of trying to drive him away? To keep him at a distance? How far will you escalate? There's an old saying about cutting off your nose to spite your face, which basically means that some people escalate in such a way that they will even do self-harm so long as it gets back at someone else. It's just another way of describing hate. But what I see is often a different way we escalate. It's that writing off moment of apathy where we simply walk away. You do your thing, you go your way. Jesus, you can have your sayings. You know, at least when you pick up a stone, there's passion there, there's investment. But how many of Jesus' would-be disciples are guilty of another way? Leads me to wonder about this too. To what are you enslaved? Because we're all enslaved to something. Those Jews who followed Jesus had the audacity of saying, we are Abraham's children. We have never been slaves of anyone. Really? Egypt? Assyria? Babylon? Persia? The Seleucids? Rome? How blind can you be? How soon we forget. The sun will set you free. The sun has come. And if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed, Jesus says. But Jesus is in the process of de-enslaving us. Because we are all enslaved to something. But those of us who think we're free, we're Americans. The thought of being enslaved? Ah, get some stones. What are you enslaved here to today? I think of Israel's history in their time of slavery. How quickly God was able to get Israel out of Egypt but how long it took him to get Egypt out of Israel. Jesus will take you out of slavery, but there is a process involved by which he takes slavery out of you. Those commitments we have to things that are contrary to his way, those loves and those loyalties we hold on to, 
that keep us enslaved. What is Jesus trying to free you? And it leads me to wonder this. What are you trusting in? And the easy answer might be Jesus. It seems that it was their answer as well. But you know, really, it wasn't. We are Abraham's descendants, they said. Where truly was their faith? They were banking on the fact that because they were people of the one true Israel, that they had it made, that it was clear sailing all the way. Jesus had something very different to say. What are you trusting in? I see this happen in all different kinds of ways. I've been baptized. I'm a fourth generation Lutheran. I went to a Concordia. I gave my life and heart to Jesus when I was 17, accepting him as my Lord and my Savior. Good for you. Are you trusting in him or what you did? What are you actually trusting in? at the end of the day, because what Jesus does is he invites people to put their trust in him. In him as the source of living water is him, is the light of the world. And the mark of discipleship for Jesus is walking in that light. Walking in the light of who he is and what he says and what he did, but the temptation that exists for every believer is the same temptation that existed for them. Jesus makes some bold, audacious claims. Before Abraham was, I am, and he has sent me. And what we see is that the longer you spend with Jesus, the more things get polarized in your heart. These people were claiming Abraham as their descendants, children of God. Jesus turns it on their head. You're not children of God at all. No matter what you believe or what you think, you're children of the devil. Don't think for one moment that because you're a human, you're a child of God. Jesus says something very different. There are those who are born of him and then everyone else and he calls them children of the devil. Does that offend you? You see what I mean by escalation and polarization? Can you see why they reacted the way they did? But let's not be like that. Let's not be like those people who claim to believe. John chapter 8 invites us to put our trust in Jesus, especially those of us who say we believe, is a light to shine in the dark places. A light that even as darkness crouches in, we know cannot overcome or finally win. All of this smashing together at this feast called tabernacles. So, let's check ourselves against this kind of faux discipleship and turn to him 
submitting to him, even when we don't like it, even when it's hard, even when we don't get it, even when it doesn't make sense. And discover what that light is all about. Here's how John will later put it in one of his letters. And I invite you to make this God's invitation to you today. Listen to what he says. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son Jesus purifies us from all our sin. If we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us move from the things that enslave us and the darkness that surrounds us. And through an honest assessment of ourselves, say, Jesus, shine your light on me. Would you rise with me?